Uh, good evening. Good evening. Thank you for, for uh, 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 coming. Um, we're very pleased. My name is Chris Alden. I'm director of the uh, Global South Unit, also a, uh, a uh, reader in international relations here. Uh, myself, uh, Dr. Alvaro Mendez, uh, and, and colleagues are all very pleased to have you here for what is the uh, the second public event of the Global South Unit. Um, the Global South Unit was uh, founded in, uh, in, in uh, uh, well, founded its origin some time ago, but formally launched uh, this uh, past year. Um, and uh, we're uh, developing a research and academic teaching agenda around questions of the South. It's for that reason that we're so pleased to have uh, Dr. Khalid Malik here to uh, present the, the lead author and uh, director of the UN Development uh, Program's uh, report on, on uh, uh, human development. Uh, he's also served uh, for the UNDP in Beijing as the lead, as, as the director of, of the office there, uh, as the author of a, of a well-known book on why China has grown so fast for so long, a question that we ask ourselves and, and we may pose later in the, the, the Q&A section. But for tonight's, for the case of tonight, so I have to lean over here. Just... For tonight, we're here really to, to we've asked uh, um, uh, him to speak to the, the rise of the South. As you know, uh, the, the, change, the dra dramatic changes of the last uh, decade have uh, been uh, accelerating, certainly since 20, 2008, 2009, to the point where um, the emerging countries of the South are, are set to re are reshaping and are, and are uh, set to continue to reshape global politics. Uh, there's a, there is a strong development dimension, of course, to the story of the emerging South and the rise of the South. And... and, and uh, Dr. Khalid Malik will speak to those specificities. Thank you very much. Hi, good evening, and thank you so much for coming for this uh, Lecture, and I want to thank uh, Dr. Chris Alden and the Global South Unit for um, inviting me here. And it's great to see so many young people. I hope uh, you know they were they had my CV up, and I said, please don't say too many things about that, because I raised expectations. I want to just dampen expectations a bit before I proceed with this. Um, the 2013 report was launched in March this year in Mexico with a new Mexican president, a young person in his 40s, a new cabinet, very much uh, equally youthful. And what fascinated me was how Mexico was beginning to rethink its place in the world. And that was one of the very fascinating stories of the rise of the South. But before I get into the report itself, I wanted to acknowledge the great debt of gratitude we owe to two remarkable people. The first one... Uh, Dr. Mahbubul Haq, a Pakistani, happens to be, uh, I'm a Pakistani as well, uh, who really started this whole notion of human development, about putting people first, about thinking through economics as if people mattered. And uh, Amartya Sen, a Nobel laureate, the two were together, uh, 
classmates and students at Cambridge as undergraduates. And I think their remarkable partnership really shaped the Human Development Report thinking, concepts, methodologies. And uh, there's a wonderful story. I don't know if uh, people, uh, I hope uh, at LSC people have heard of a human development and they talk about these things also. Huh? Um, there's a wonderful story where there was a big debate between uh, Mahbub and Amrita as to should we there be a measure of human development? And um, uh, Amrita, who's a, social, a profound philosopher, said, you know, if you do that, it'll be a vulgar index. And he said, yes, exactly that. We want to be as vulgar as GDP. So that was the whole thinking. And I think it made a remarkable difference to the way people looked at it. The story of uh, the Rise of the South is actually a very profound story. I, and I don't know if people have followed this a bit, but if the Industrial Revolution was a hundred million people's story, this story is about a two couple of billion people's story. And it's fundamentally a story about the rise of human capabilities, choices which are available to people. Large numbers of people in the world are doing better. Large number of countries are doing better. And it's an enormous story because as we will talk through some of these things, that this is accompanied, particularly in the last decade, things have accelerated. And they've accelerated in a very profound way. Uh, there are at least 40 plus countries which are doing better than expected. And the last decade really is the story of that whole experience. And I, I'm sure people who've been looking at newspapers in the last couple of years have heard a lot about uh, the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. But as I said, this is a story which is much larger than that. At least 40 plus countries have done better. Uh, there's been some debate as to should we have called it Rise of the South, and I think that was just about right. Let me start by giving a few slides on the context in which this report has been produced. And this is a, a slide about the global rebalancing, and takes three countries, Brazil, India, and China, and presents how the share of world output in purchasing power parity terms stacks up with the six traditional industrialized countries. And you can see the gap is closing and closing fast. A second uh, slide to give you a sense of that this is a multifaceted uh, phenomenon. South-South trade and North-North trade are getting very close to each other, roughly 30% of the world merchandise trade. And all, if you see it, all accelerated since the year 2000. And this is a very interesting uh, uh, slide because it shows at least 40-plus country doing better than expected. Not just BRICS, but also Malaysia, Mauritius, Turkey, Tunisia, Indonesia, uh, Laopedia, Bangladesh. And I'll come back to Bangladesh a bit uh, during the conversation. And what we did in the report was uh, we looked at 18-plus countries from this 40-plus countries and really went into great detail to understand why things had worked better than others. And that's part of the story of the report. This is a very interesting slide. It gives you a sense of a certain amount of catch-up which is occurring of low human development index countries. You know, we, ca we categorize 
countries in very high human development, high human development, medium and low, low human development countries are catching up faster than others. And that's, I think, good news. And as I said earlier, it's accelerated thing in the year 2000. Huh? We have taken traditional definitions of the global middle class, but there's actually a deeper story than that. The deeper story is that uh, people who are better educated, people who are better connected globally, think of themselves as being middle class, even if the income definitions don't pertain to them. So this is the traditional definition of a, global, of a middle class. And the numbers are striking. Uh, we have roughly about 2 billion people which are considered middle class these days, most of them from Europe and North America. By 2030, the numbers go up to 4.9 billion middle class, with all the implications that has, but most of them coming from Asia. And that is a very interesting future of the future. As much change is occurring now, and maybe because we are in the middle of it, we do not fully feel it, historically, historians are going to say this is a, a defining moment in world history. Huh? Another sense of that, uh, a much more connected world. We've been we were debating a lot whether we should call our report Global South, but then the question is how do you define Global South? And after doing a lot of empirical and uh, econometric work, we kind of gave up that term, but I'm very glad the unit is called a Global South unit. Huh? Internet connectivity, there are twice as many internet users in the developing world as in the developed world. So, the question arises, why have some countries done better than others? And what can we learn from them? And this is a very profound question because uh, we of course know that uh, country circumstances are different, context matters a lot, but surely there must be something which one can tease out from this 18 country experience which we went into great detail and understand maybe there's something familiar or similar amongst them. We came up with three drivers of, of this developmental progress. First one, proactive developmental states. Second one, global markets, which I'll talk a little bit more. And third one is social policies. Now, developmental states has had a bad rap, as you know. In the 60s and 70s, it was seen to be People talked about it, uh, mostly from East Asian countries, and they said there's something not quite right because human rights were not fully factored in. But the reality is, I think the debate between the state and markets was never a profound, important debate. You need both. But you cannot easily develop, and that's the historical experience, without a committed, active state, without a state and a ruling elite which feels that their long-term longevity is connected to embracing development and spreading our developmental benefits. Commitment to long-term development, actively promoting job creation, health investment, health and education investments, all elements of a developmental state which uh, perhaps uh, historically people have been a bit hesitant and as you know, particularly the Washington consensus has been very um, active in pushing forward a certain way of looking at markets. We thought, since we, are, uh, we were debating, should we keep the presentation general or should we throw in some uh, empirical kind of results? And since it is a LSE crowd, we thought we'll show a few slides and try to give a sense that how 
human development values and public investments make a difference. If you remember, I talked about public investment, health and education was quite critical in accelerating development, not just uh, promoting development, accelerating development. And this kind of uh, uh, set of uh, results reinforces that. The second driver is about tapping global markets. And as you know, there's been a lot of debate and strong views expressed about globalization. Is it bad? Is it good? Does it help, hurt? And I think the, looking at the 18 country experience in considerable detail, we came out with a very interesting position, which is that markets, global markets, have a tremendous multiplier effect. Only, but there's a proviso, there's a condition there. And the condition is only if you invest in people and infrastructure do you benefit from these global markets. If you do not do that, it can go either way. And that, I think, is a profoundly important uh, conclusion. Another slide which gives you a sense that uh, most countries which did well in human development also opened up. So there's some uh, empirical work. Uh, when I, we were in Mexico, the, the foreign minister organized a dinner for us and brought in a lot of uh, other ministers and governors. And we had uh, the Minister of Social Development with us, a new minister, who was being very critical of the Oportunidades program in Mexico. And that's the program we had complemented in the report because we thought it did well. The conditional cash transfers, uh, not just in, in Mexico or India or Brazil, have started changing things quite a lot. And her peeve was that it's creating dependency. And I think what it reinforces is that social policies are as important as economic policies. And you can go a step further by saying social policy and economic policies must come together if they really are to work well. But take the case of Brazil. The Bolsa Familia program in Brazil has empowered large numbers of uh, uh, people in society, even if the growth rates have been rather modest, 2-3% of the last many years. But if you go to Brazil, things have moved, and of course you can see what is also happening at the social level. I'll come back to that. India, uh, the employment the guarantee program, they have done a lot of interesting things on uh, how uh, to extend right-based uh, initiatives, the right to a food came out recently. But it's, it's fascinating when you look at South Asia, if you compare India with Bangladesh, uh, India is seen as a success story, a big success story because of high growth rates. But when you compare the two countries, Bangladesh is doing better at almost every aspect of human development. For ant, plus, it has not had growth reversals. Decade after decade, growth has continued. Very simple reasons. Empowerment, education, uh, broadening the base of uh, uh, people's inclusion in markets. And I think that's a very interesting comparison that when you look at human development, you have a different perspective than just looking at income and growth. Again, some uh, slides for those who are more empirically minded. Um, uh, child survival and previous health expenditure in public have, have a big impact. And it's not just an impact on reducing mortality rates, but we were able to also demonstrate their value in terms of, uh, um, in terms of growth. Maybe I should say a little bit more of this. 
Um, hold on. I'll, I'll do that later. So three main drivers. And then the question came, first to anchor where we are, how large this phenomena of the rise of South is. Second, to tease out uh, developmental policy implications. And third was, what are the future challenges for human development, not just in these countries, but also beyond. And we highlighted four challenges. Challenges of equity, voice and accountability, environment, and demography. I, I'm sure people have followed some uh, work done uh, uh, about developed countries, how inequality uh, reduces uh, life chances. But we then did a lot of work for both developed and developing countries and came up with really robust conclusions that equal societies do better in most aspects of life than unequal societies. Therefore, the move towards the more equal society is profoundly important. And this is why the social policies are so important. In 2010, we, uh, when we launched our global report, we were quite pleased and we acknowledged countries like uh, Egypt and, and Morocco and Tunisia having done well in human development. And then a few months later, the Arab uh, Spring happened. So we're trying to understand why. And the reasons also are quite straightforward. When you, people get more educated, when they're better connected, they, are, they understand not only what is happening in their own countries. Farmers in India and Africa know what the price of their commodities are. But they also, a profound change starts occurring that the relationship between citizens and the states starts adjusting. People demand to be treated with dignity, they demand to be treated better, have more jobs. And what we could demonstrate, and there's an interesting graph in the report, that in the Arab Spring, the Arab Spring happened mostly in countries where the gap between education, educated people, and jobs were the largest. Well, it's quite interesting. And when we look at future challenges, it's also clear that the closest thing you have to a similar bullet is educating women. It affects not only can reduce more... Uh, maternal mortality rates, but also creates the conditions for a more educated next generation. And we also did some interesting work on uh, social cohesion and social stability matters. I wanted to highlight environment. Uh, in 2011, we produced a report which made the uh, interesting point that the environment is hurting poor communities and poor countries the most. So if you do not pay adequate attention to it, it will be the poor who will suffer the most. And this is a kind of a very uh, interesting uh, demonstration of that. We have an advisory board. We have very distinguished people in advisory board. But the, by the time you get distinguished, you also get a bit older. And uh, when we were talking about uh, doing heavy-duty modeling and uh, looking at uh, general equilibrium models as predictive for the future, there was a great reluctance by these very eminent people in looking at models. But luckily, the, some of the younger people convinced us so this is modeling which gives you a sense of uh, different policy scenarios. And compare Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, that if we do not take care of the environment, this extreme case scenario, of course, that the billion people 
today in Africa, which will go to 2 billion people by 2050, half of that, a little half, more than half of that would be poor, much larger numbers than, than now. However, if we also take more active policies, greater policy ambition, it is possible to almost eliminate poverty. And certainly in South Asia, that is doable. So it is a choice. And the report argues for greater policy ambition, of course. And then uh, the question arises, is demography destiny? Uh, I don't know if a few years ago, people who follow this uh, um, highlighted uh, uh, that, uh, I mean, there was a lot of comparison between India and China. And people had written a lot of interesting books saying that, well, in long term, India would do better because, of course, there's a demographic dividend, a lot, lot more younger people now will move uh, markets forwards. And China will not do so well because it's in a potentially declining population. And actually, the work which was done here showed that uh, in both cases, you have to manage it. And the key is education, because that's key to reducing fertility rates, and job creation. So if you do not have that equation well in hand, I either can be a disaster or be a, uh, a plus. And actually, on education fertility rates, I should uh, also highlight uh, one of the very interesting demographic work done in the report. Fertility rates are declining everywhere in the world except some countries in Africa. So the question is why? And when you look into it, you see that you can empirically connect it with a reduced health and education expenditures in the 1980s in those very countries. Exactly those countries which were recipients of structural adjustment programs of the Bread Women's Institution. So really, you can set up very strong relationships. And that shows that these things are all interconnected. There's no destiny issue. You can influence that. I had a slide which unfortunately is not here, which has gained some uh, prominence uh, where I tried to be plotted uh, human development index on one uh, axis and the ecological footprint on the other axis, uh, which basically showed that very few countries at this point in the world are sustainable. So very high human developed countries like, of course, the more advanced countries need to bring down their per capita footprint of the world and developing countries, as they increase the development, have to make sure the per capita footprint doesn't go up. That's one of the environmental challenges. I'm sorry it's not in the slide over here. We also tried to uh, give some uh, projections, uh, implications in terms of comparing uh, country experiences. And this is a, a comparison between um, uh, Republic Korea and um, and, and India, which basically shows that how you manage education in terms of how you balance between primary, secondary, and tertiary education has huge impact on the kind of the demographic uh, outline of the population. I'll just skip this. So then came the question, what does it all mean in terms of global governance issues? Are there new opportunities for development partnerships? Can we do better? Can we share uh, progress? And in some ways, what is happening now is that we have 20th century institutions trying to deal with 21st century realities. And that's one of the basic reasons why 
global negotiations are not making much progress. There's a great struggle uh, in trying to, uh, and partly because of the, the lack of progress in, by global institutions, regional mechanisms have proliferated in finance, in migration, you name it. A tremendous explosion in that. And when you have that array of uh, new institutions coming, uh, what we are trying to articulate in the report are a couple of principles. The first principle being to promote coherent pluralism, meaning that somehow we have to find a greater fit between global institutions. For instance, you need global arrangements for climate change because climate change does not recognize uh, whether the emissions are in Shanghai or in, in Detroit. It's the same kind of fact as far as the globe is concerned. And regional arrangements do matter. If you remember that after the last Asian crisis, maybe not, um, uh, there was a big move by Japan to create an Asian monetary facility, Asian monetary fund, and that didn't go very far because of the global power arrangements at that point. Now all that is changing quite a lot. We also promoted in the, in the report a concept of responsible sovereignty. And the argument there is, that when we are much more globally connected, the Westphalian system of nation states begins to be less useful. Because whatever decisions you take have considerable implications for your neighbors and globally as well. And therefore, you need a different concept of sovereignty in order to make progress on that. We also talked about in the report on non-state actors, uh, talking about the global society, it has had a huge, I think, impact and likely to do that uh, even more in the future. When I, when I was in Rio for the Rio Plus 20 conference, I was very fascinated by a movement called the ecological citizenship, meaning each of us, regardless of our affiliations, have a responsibility to make progress. And therefore, we need to take that in our own hands, even if our leaders are unable to somehow agree on, on, on making progress. So global civil society is beginning to have an influence on norms and standards. They are, when I was in China, I was uh, trying to raise an awareness with Chinese leaders and Chinese institutions that long-term growths of China are not sustainable if partners and neighbors do not benefit. In the end, someone has to buy your goods. Uh, more recently, when I launched this report in Beijing about a couple of months ago, I was fascinated that how thinking has shifted or beginning to change in China as well. There are something like $6.8 trillion in reserves in developing countries. Almost double that in developed countries. Now, this was something which started after the Asian crisis because no one wanted to go to the IMF after the Asian crisis. So they started doing self-insurance, accumulating reserves. But we have gone far beyond a level which is considered to be useful. And in the end, it's an implicit tax on your own citizens. And the argument here is that maybe the time has come to think of new creative ways of floating bonds, creating infrastructure banks, so that a small percentage of those uh, resources can be used to gain higher returns than just, say, investing in treasury bills. Now, these are quite controversial, and uh, we've had a lot of debate uh, at the global level on these things as well. Second, new institutions are now needed when the world starts changing in order to gird its future change and to nurture it. Um, new institutions are needed to facilitate regional integration, 
South our relationship, and we've made a call for a new South Commission. When we were launching this report in Mexico, uh, the former president of Chile, uh, President Lago, was sitting next to me, and when I mentioned this new South Commission, he said, no, this is great, I want to be part of that. Clearly, there was a demand that the architecture of the world has changed so much, we have to now reflect this in the future of uh, institutional adjustments. This is the final slide. I hope I have not gone beyond the time. Um, rising economic strength must be matched by a full commitment to human development. And that's a very specific recommendation of the report. Africa is doing much better, and you've heard that. I'm sure you've read about it. Uh, high, high growth rates. But Africa is not generating the level of jobs which East Asia was at similar levels of development. So focusing on human development is the way to go in a sense. Least developed countries, and there are quite a few of them, can learn and benefit from the success of the emerging economies. There's a tremendous opportunity for learning from each other. Context matters, but learning about how things happen matters a lot. And I think that's very important. For instance, there's been a uh, you'll be fascinated to know that Scandinavian countries uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century initiated universal education, universal social insurance and health at levels of income lower than what is pertaining now in South Asia. Yet, in developing countries, the notion of universal uh, social insurance is, is people think is too expensive. So we have to change those mindsets a lot. In the end, when a world changes, uh, it has to be also seen to be legitimate and representation for the South and civil society in global arrangements is very important. A much greater voice is essential. And it's not just an issue of the World Bank and the IMF. I think there's a much broader concern here. We are now at a very interesting point in history. This, we are at a three-engine world economy. If one engine... North America, Europe, and the South. If one engine falters, the two engines still can drive the global economy along. If two falter, everyone is troubled. So in a more connected world, the South will continue to need the North in technology, in resources, in partnerships. But for the first time in history, after two, three generations and through these very centuries, increasingly the North will now need the South as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's uh, a very uh, um, comprehensive and, and both rich in, in detail and uh, data and analysis. Um, this is the time at which uh, I can open it up to the floor. Please, if you do have a question, would you identify yourself uh, to, uh, before asking the question? Yeah, we'll take, we'll take a, a set of three to start with. First back there, then there. The advances of 40 countries or so, uh, the, the progress in the South, uh, it hides, I hope it doesn't hide the fact that there's a section that uh, oppressed people, they are going in the opposite direction. 
for example, uh, in the last 60 years, science and technology would have uh, enabled the world to go forward, a section of the people. But at the same time, in the last six decades, um, freedom from the colonized uh, world um, has, uh, has uh, brought for, uh, in a phenomenon called internal colonialism. In, uh, when external colonialism, in place of external colonialism, internal colonialism appeared. For example, I can take Sri Lanka. Um, uh, 60 years, the people uh, of the North and the East, the my ethnic minorities, they have gone down socioeconomically downwards like this. And the environment also, also now, the army of occupation is destroying the environment. So they are very well, um, very different from the story you are telling. Thank you. Um, Karen Dabrowska, London correspondent of the Tripoli Post newspaper. I noticed that you didn't mention anything much about the Middle East, especially the countries of the Arab Spring. So I was wondering if you could comment on that with special reference to Libya. Do we have another question? One right there. Yeah. Good evening, sir. I have a doubt regarding your graph for the internet users. Uh, the, the fact that twen twice as many internet users in the developing countries rather than developed countries uh, I believe this is probably because the population in the developing countries is twice as much because, like, India is so heavily populated. So I guess that's one reason it is that way. Thank you. Uh, thank you for those uh, great questions. And um, it's good to have difficult questions so that I can think a bit more clearly. Um, you know, the, the whole notion of human development is rests on the notion of capabilities and choices. Uh, capabilities improve when you reduce poverty. Capabilities improve when you educate people and they get better health. So when uh, China lifts 600 million people out of poverty, this is a remarkable progress in the last uh, two, three generations. So numbers of people in this world who are less poor, who are more educated, who are be have better health, has grown tremendously. So, it's, so that's the, the basic argument on that. Now, in the case of uh, Sri Lanka, uh, what I found was particularly fascinating is that, uh, you know, Sri Lanka historically has been always seen to be, have done better in human development terms and income growth in South Asia because of higher education. And I suspect this is one of the reasons why uh, Sri Lanka is also rebounding much faster than one would have expected after such a long and severe civil war because of systems being more robust in a way. Now, this does not imply that there's not uh, uh, oppression and people are not being discriminated against. If you are a minority in a majority-driven um, society, of course you feel insecure. So and the argument is not that everything is better, but the argument is that things, many things have become better and many people are. The numbers argument is a very important one. The second uh, question was really about the Middle East. I thought I said a little bit about the Middle East. And I started by talking about our 2010 report where we had highlighted uh, human development progress in a number of uh, Middle Eastern countries. And suddenly it, it turns out those were precisely those same countries where the Arab Spring took place. And the question is why? And there's some interesting work in the report where 
it showed that if education goes up, if people are healthier, if you're better connected globally, and of course social media is a powerful aggregator of some of those issues, then you, the relationship changes. This is true today as much of the Middle East as is true countries like China. China has 600 million people on the web. The pressures on the officials are enormous of transparency and, and accountability. A few years ago, uh, there was a big uh, train accident uh, Near, near Beijing in Tianjin, and the first instinct of the officials was to bury the train. Now think of trying to bury a train. You need a huge amount of equipment to do so. And of course, people were taking a you know, little, you know, recording it, and they spread it, and a few days later, Premier Wen Jiabao had to personally come and commit himself and the government to a fair and partial inquiry, and that's what they did, and they have locked up quite a few people as a result. I think this is the way of the future. It doesn't mean that things are going to be predictable. What it does mean is that these demands are going to be more intense. And I suspect that's what you see also in, in, in countries like... Uh, Libya is a kind of a special place, I would say, but the countries like Egypt. In the end, if governments are not representing most of the people, these voices will not be kept stilled because of an opportunity to communicate, because of an opportunity to connect with each other. And I think you made my point about uh, the, the graph. It's a numbers issue fundamentally. Thank you. Um, if I may uh, use the privilege of the chair just to ask a question that draws on some of the themes you've, you've mentioned, which is uh, currently as Africa rises, as states, uh, states in Africa are looking to China and the Chinese model uh, as, a, as a potential, as, as a model for a path for development. At the same time, within China and within the development community, there's this concern about the unsustainability of that model, the environmental impacts, part of which you spoke to. And I wonder if, if, uh, uh, if this rethink is, is translating into a changed attitude towards policy in, in, in African countries. That's a large question, so I'll take it. <laughs> so um, I, it's also a good opportunity for me to draw attention to my book on China, so I hope uh, people look at that. Um, when I started writing the book, uh, it was uh, trying to understand China. And, uh, you know, I was going from New York to uh, Beijing, and, of course, you talk to all the, the gurus about uh, development in China and in, at Harvard and Columbia and... But when I got to Beijing, I realized something quite different was happening. Now, if you look at the Financial Times coverage of China in the last 20-plus years, there's a very interesting common refrain, and the common refrain is, next year, the, the bubble is going to burst. Uh, property values are all over the place. The numbers lie. They don't mean anything. Huh? And you'll be amazed, the similar kind of things are said. So it encouraged me to do a little bit thinking as to why things have happened why things have changed. Um, and those who go to China see a transformed China, not just in Beijing, Shanghai, but everywhere. No slums, very interesting experiences, uh, and an improvement in quality of life, I would say. Now, then the question is, what does that mean on the downside in terms of uh, the pressure on resources? Uh, per capita uh, water use in China is two, two to three times higher than the world's average. Uh, the air quality in Beijing is pretty bad. I'm part of the family which still lives there, so I, I worry about them. 
And there was a recent uh, report, I think in yesterday's financial time, where there was a study which showed that if you're north of a river, your life expectancy is reduced by five and a half years if you're south of a river. So clearly it has implications for how people live. I think when the numbers count, when, you know, if, uh, if Mauritius does well, we all applaud that. But if many billions do better, clearly there's a resource issue. And uh, I think there's a very complex balance. That's why I'm sorry the slide I was talking about it was not there, where we try to plot the HDI and global footprint. So the question is, is, is the Chinese model sustainable or is development sustainable? I don't think the issue is Chinese model. The question is, is development sustainable? I think the, the basic view is that every person, every country has a right to develop. The question is, can we do it smartly? Can we do it in a more, uh, in a way which balances uh, uh, pressure on, on uh, the environment and economic resources? Um, I think the, the story about Africa, which is another dimension that, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, the prices of primary commodities for Africa economies was declining. So the terms of trade were against you. Since the rise of China, that has changed. And for the last decade, this, it's not coincidental, by the way, that things have gone better. I think the rise of China has a lot to do with it. Now, it's very difficult to think that uh, the world can replicate the kind of lifestyles you have in the U.S., and I would say even the U.K., all over the world. So something has to give. The estimates we made was that if you replicate the lifestyles of uh, U.S., um, you need three Earths to sustain the number of people, which will be uh, it's 7 billion now, 9 billion another uh, 20 years plus. So something has to give, and I think the commitment on climate change, the commitment to have more energy efficiency is very important, and I should say that some of the most interesting work being done in these areas are precisely in the emerging countries. Uh, China, India are doing some very interesting work on new renewable energy sources. Would that be sufficient? Difficult to, to say. But I don't think it's the issue of Chinese developmental model. The issue is development itself. Um, one basic feature of that is a choice, uh, whether you have choice of whether they should be public goods or private goods, meaning if you... If you encourage a developmental model which uh, encourages people to buy cars individually as opposed to public transport, that's a big implication. If you do that for, you know, uh, one of our uh, advisors on this our uh, high-level uh, advisory board is a very distinguished uh, Brazilian senator who used to be the education minister and uh, who told me a very interesting story about Brazil. He said... Uh, University professors, I shouldn't mention this, but uh, <laughs> university professors' salaries went down by 40% in Brazil. And interesting how the behavior changed. Uh, so when 40% went down, the professors had a choice. They took their children out of private school and put them in public school, stopped using their cars, and started looking at public transport. Both public schools and public transport were not well organized in Brazil. But then it created a constituency for them to demand higher standards. 
So there's a big implication here. If the middle class is not involved in public goods, quality does not improve. And I think that's the implication of developmental pathways. So it's not a China thing, it's a developmental story issue. Thank you. Hello. You talked about um, the importance of the Global South and how, obviously, the development there is rising exponentially almost. In light of that, do you then believe that it is wrong for governments um, in the West to then be giving them development aid as a result? Thank you. Yeah, I think we'll take, we'll take three, three groups. Hello. My name is Hector. I'm from the LC. And I was surprised you didn't say anything about the European <coughs> crisis related to the uh, development of the South. Uh, you say uh, about the middle class that's growing in the South, but do you think it's enough strong to support the fall down of the European middle class? Um, over here. Hi, it's Susan Nicolai with the Overseas Development Institute. And my question actually builds on the, the question about aid. And I'm wondering um, what your perspective is on the role that international aid has or hasn't played in this. And now um, with the potential shift to more South-South cooperation. I'm going to tread very carefully on the aid question, but I'll, let me start with the European crisis first. Um, actually, in the first chapter, we've, um, there's a chapter called State of Human Development in the World, and we have taken a position on the European crisis. Um, I think Keynes was right 75 years ago that, um, you know, Austerity is not the time to pull back on public expenditures. It just isn't. And no amount of uh, debates on this thing will convince, which somehow push away the empirical evidence, which is very compelling. There's a second dimension to it. If uh, uh, the system as a whole starts reducing average capabilities, meaning that people are unemployed for a long period of time. In, in Spain, for instance, as you know, it's 25% unemployment, but among the youth, it's almost 60%. You start, having, you start affecting intergenerationally capabilities as well. So there are a lot of implications. I talked about uh, Africa and the structure adjustment programs where short-term actions, expenditure adjustment, balancing the budget actions, 20 years later produce a rise in fertility rates. You, you will re-influence society quite a lot. Curiously enough, this is happening when, the, when there's a great opportunity. The, the, there's a rising uh, part of the world. The demand is moving up. Why, why this, there must be a reason why, despite uh, uh, not very robust uh, expansion in the U.S. and uh, recession in most of the European countries, but despite that, the southern countries, many southern countries have done well. Uh, there is a huge demand for goods and commodities from Europe, from the emerging countries. And the curious thing for me is that somehow we have not been able to connect the, the two. Uh, one reason why Germany is so successful is because of the export uh, ability to just push out goods, and there was a demand for it. Highly high-quality engineering goods, for instance. So I, I think somehow uh, global leaders and uh, national policymakers have not been able to put it together in the way it should be and where it is possible 
there isn't a global depression, but there are, I think, uh, quite a lot of self-inflicted uh, complications. And that's unfortunate because I thought this would be uh, this could have been uh, affected early on. But I'm very glad even the IMF came out with the report, as you know, where they said, uh, even they were talking about the UK, <laughs> basically encouraged more uh, expansionary policies. Of course, how you, uh, how you manage debt and what is the threshold debt. I was at a, a forum in uh, Paris and the, uh, President Hollande was with us and there was a, a huge, huge gathering and one ambassador asked... Uh, and, you know, this uh, Reinhardt's, uh, this uh, Rogoff and the paper which we said that somehow there's a magic number to an aust- a debt level uh, and which, of course, has been found to be not correct. Uh, and they asked those questions because people were worried. They want to be responsible and they want to grow at the same time. But maybe the sequencing is out of sync on that one. Huh? Uh, on the issue of aid and trade and development partnership, I think there's a, uh, the great success of the Millennium Goals was precisely that the world came together and agreed. And I think that's a great success for the United Nations and under the leader of Kofi Annan at that time, that somehow the world agreed to setting up goals and improvement in living standards for most people in the world. And I think there was a tremendous opportunity for the solidarity of the world coming together. So I think it's not, these are not substitutable issues. Uh, uh, one does not imply less of the other but what it does mean is that there's a greater policy space in many developing countries with, which with additional uh, support on traditional ODA can do a lot of good and I think that remains uh, important uh, I, I don't think the report argues or makes any uh, claim that one substitutes the other uh, there was a, uh, a forum uh, in Berlin a few weeks ago, which was actually based on the report, and uh, we were asking similar questions, and that I gave a similar answer. So thank you for that. Yeah, right here. Hi, my name is Ben Tang. I'm an LSE summer school student. Um, a number of more developed countries rely on lesser developed countries for a large pool of cheap and sometimes illegal labor. Um, now that you, you, you mentioned earlier on that these lesser developed countries are starting to be more and more developed, and as they get more developed, um, the people in those countries are going to be seeking better jobs, things that, which would satisfy them more. With regards to this, what do you see would be the impact economically and with regards to development in these more developed countries as this pool of cheap labor starts to dissolve, as they start going on to look for better jobs. Uh, My name is Priha, and I'm at the LSE. My question is aimed at uh, one of the priorities that you listed, um, which includes greater representation for the South. Now, the greater representation from what I understand, is it, um, please do make that clear, is it diplomatic or regarding the trade share of these developing countries of the South? Because if it's diplomatic, there's no way that all these emerging countries like Brazil and India and all of, basically the countries in the South that are coming on the forefront, they're in no way getting permanent status, statuses um, in the near future. They already are members, but their problems are not being solved as yet of uh, being part of the UN. And if you're talking about trade share, again, um, 
you can't just expect uh, these South countries to magically creep into West, huge Western trade agreements, uh, nor have the upper hand at the WTO. So the greater representation um, is kind of vague. I mean, it, it's, ideal, it's idealistic. It's, it's great. It should happen, but I don't see how it would. Do you think that one day will be like all the countries will be more or less equally developed or that the development of these new countries will create a downfall of others and that there will be an eternal thing of richer and poorer countries? I, I feel very empowered myself when young people say I'm being too idealistic, so that's good. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I think in terms of cheap labor, it's, it's fascinating, again, that, uh, you know, things you're taught in, at university and at LSC, uh, people talk a lot about labor shares, and they talk about uh, labor prices and unlimited supply from the rural areas, which pushes people into urban areas. Actually, I think if you look at the real world, things are quite different now. And you look at the iPhone, for instance, you'll be surprised how, how little the price of iPhone actually is uh, resident in China, even though it's, it's uh, put together in China. It's 3% actually of that uh, total value. So when you do, one has to rethink the notion of uh, what high labor costs mean. Actually, it's labor productivity, which is far more important in some ways. And also these days, and that's what the report also highlights, you have a lot of supply chains. Modern manufacturing is all over the place. You produce, you bring components together, you have different things. And increasingly, supply chains are highly sophisticated supply chains. So you need educated people. You need qualified people. And if you do not have then that's what the, the, uh, the, the empirical evidence shows, that if you do not invest in people, you do not benefit from the supply chains. So I think the whole idea, I mean, look at China. China people are always scared that uh, China the labor costs were so low and they were, you know, consumer goods. Uh, but actually, China was already moving out of consumer goods almost 15 years ago, 10 years ago. There is, the people who benefited mostly were uh, Bangladeshis. and uh, So that's happened. Uh, China is competitive, not just at the lower end, but also the middle end and on the higher end. So you no longer have a simplistic view of specialization. You ha every country has to educate because once you educate, that's what it means by capabilities. Your ability to understand yourself and to contribute increases. That's what the human development thinking. So I think one has to rethink these uh, rather simplest idea. I don't know how many of you have done the two-factor growth models and, and all those. Uh, I don't know how many economists uh, we have in this uh, group, but uh, I think they were never that useful, by the way. <laughs> but that's a different. I'm sure others will disagree with me. Uh, in terms of idealism, which I'm very proud of, <laughs> uh, the whole question of, is really issue of voice, issue of being able to uh, have a legitimate, um, why is the Security Council stuck a little bit? You know, uh, there's a reason for that, because there's a transition going on between old powers and new powers who are trying to push their way into it. I think if we do not do that, decisions will not be legitimate. If you think of the G7 
which became G8 and G20. But still, even at the G20 level, there are 173 countries which are not part of the G20. So I think uh, legitimacy is important because otherwise decisions and policies are not fully supported by the people at large. In the end, people do matter in that. Uh, it's the voice in terms of uh, things that matter. Uh, there's a reason why uh, there's been such a huge proliferation of free trade agreements between countries, but not through the WTO because negotiations are stuck there. So we have to make some uh, ability to move things forward. Um, there are no easy answers to that, but unless you have greater representation, uh, it's much more difficult to get decisions which can, things forward, can move things forward. And the argument here is that... Um, you, you, you capture this new energy of the South to also help resolve global and regional problems. So that's the hypothesis there. Huh? Can I, I add a, a, a line to the question to that reform of global institutions? Um, in the absence of, of, really, of really grasping and implementing uh, commitments to reform these institutions and bring emerging countries into the decision-making, at the center of decision-making, do things like the BRICS Development Bank uh, suggest that there is a, a kind of counter-South uh, uh, um, possibility that will emerge if, if, if northern-dominated institutions don't uh, reform? Let's take some more in addition to that. Yeah. Good evening, my name is Paco. I come from Mexico and I am an LSE summer school student right now. My question is about, uh, there's been a, a big debate going on right now in Mexico about how much we want to depend on the U.S. when it comes to economy. In this particular case, like for example, when, when you realize that 80% 80, 80 of our exports go, go to the United States, whereas only 20% of their exports come to us. So this actually shows some information that tells us, this is telling us that there is a big dependency from Mexico to the United, uh, to the United States when it comes to, to economy. So uh, after this study that you've presented to us, is there any information that could tell us if it's a good thing for, like, when it comes to the rise of the South, is it a good thing for um, emerging economies to depend on superpowers or have of, or have countries with diverse economies shown to, to have a more independent economy or a more independent development when they, when they diverse their economy. Thank you. Any other questions out there? Thank you. Um, on the 27th of November last year, the president of the World Bank uh, was talking about structural reforms. Uh, how probable is it that the World Bank system will be reformed within the next few years? Well, I, I think the first and the last question were kind of related because they were global institutions. Um, I, you know, it's the BRICS, you know, clearly there's a space and institutions are trying to fill that space. The BRICS as an idea there's no logic to it, fundamentally, if you think about it, right? It, there was a, a very well-known financial wizard who concocted this BRICS acronym to give a certain fix to him selling emerging markets. Uh, 
and they are very there are some connections but not so much but the fact that uh, they it started they started talking to each other they had uh, uh, head of state uh, gatherings regular meetings now shows that there is some space which groups of countries are trying to fill basics another group um, so clearly there's a view that the decision making architecture in the world is not working out easily or fully and i think uh, brics development bank is a good idea but it's not i mean it's not meant to be an either or proposition i'm sure other mechanism groups banks are equally good um, i was just by chance in beijing at that time and uh, people were trying to interview me on that and um, i think more resources which going to is are better Uh, there was a few years ago um, the chief economist of the world bank uh, justin who's now gone back to china also promoted the idea of a infrastructure bank but for the with a view of attracting private capital because right now there's a lot of private capital in the world trying to desperately find good returns and long term good returns are going to come from emerging markets so that seemed like a good link to do uh, sponge up that uh, excess liquidity and use it uh, more productively there's a 80 billion dollar gap in africa for infrastructure by the way half of that is being met by brics mostly china but there's a great opportunity to raise resources and invest appropriately so i think uh, uh, in some ways reform is a very complicated exercise i mean is now in the un for quite a long time and as long as been there there's always been talk of reform and you really wonder whether at times you'll make progress or not but uh, clearly uh, if you are unable to meet the needs history is not kind to you either you either move forward or you go backwards so there's a i think a bit of a crisis which has to be answered in terms of relevance and results fundamentally if uh, if the global climate negotiations don't produce results that's a bad thing for all of us if uh, the millennium development goals conversation do not result in a new set of goals by year 2015 that's also a big problem now will this happen now or later i don't know it's difficult to uh, stargaze that much but i know that uh, the security council clearly uh, there's always debate going on is it adequate are the right countries represented there do they represent others well um but the fact those questions are not dying away means that there's a unmet need and we have to resolve that somehow the case of mexico is quite interesting i i was quite actually impressed by the new new government and new team because uh, in the first uh, days of the new president uh, and the new government they set up a, a pacto pacto mexico which was a remarkable uh, document is something i've encouraged to, uh, my own country pakistan to do as well that they got all the parties together and said this is the reform agenda we will all agree to reform in the telecommunication sector reform in all kind of things it's quite remarkable if you look at the document so i think that shows and then why did they got so interested in report was that they realized that the world is getting much more connected so even with their superpower in, in the north they need to diversify their economies they need to open up uh the petroleum industry and the state uh, monopolies on that so i think that's good of course that doesn't mean that uh, in uh, next 5 uh, years suddenly the dependence on the us will be reduced
but the diversity is useful. And I think the, the China factor is quite remarkable. Think of the numbers. Uh, in 1999 or 2000, the trade between China and Africa was $2 billion. Last year, it touched $200 billion. No one expected China and India to uh, trade with each other. But China is now the largest trading partner of India, but also Brazil, also Chile. So things are changing much more dramatically than we think. No one expected to travel, I don't know, two days. And the way, I mean, just getting a flight to, uh, I think in the future you'll see a lot of new arrangements, uh, uh, people flying directly from countries which are not known to see each other. By 2020, the projections are there'll be 100 million Chinese going overseas as tourists every year. 100 million. And by the way, per capita, a Chinese tourist is the highest spending tourist in the world, even higher than the Japanese. So think of it. I think you should start learning Chinese as far as I can see. That'll be very good for all of us. Thank you. And, and uh, there's time for another round if, if uh, there are questions out there. Uh, hello, I'm a student from China. And uh, as China develops, uh, there's a lot of uh, foreign direct investment coming from China to developed countries like US and UK. Uh, while there's the capital may really uh, boost the European economy and also American economy, there's uh, increasing suspension that this capital actually carries political agenda or uh, as a sign of uh, political power expansion of China. So they, uh, a lot of uh, capital coming from China suffered great hostile act from, uh, for example, US. So what do you suggest that China, Chinese corporations and the private sector of China should deal with this kind of problem while, while the regime of China actually hinder their development? Thank you. Okay. One out, out there. Um, hi, uh, Luca Marazzi, Department of Geography at UCL. Um, I found about three paragraphs uh, explicitly mentioning the environment in the in the report out of 14 pages. Now, uh, I attended uh, James Hansen's lecture here at LSE uh, a couple of months ago. And, you know, he's um, a great advocate for a clear and big revolution in the economic system in terms of the environmental impacts. Uh, what do you think about the weight that, that the environment should, um, should take in terms of finding solutions, um, also in terms of the population growth? Um, and uh, uh, don't you think that um, there should be a much more kind of dramatic call for a big change because obviously greater participation is important but there are clashes and the woman from um, Sri Lanka was mentioning the oppression of people and lobbies and the Keystone pipeline uh, being almost uh, imposed now on the agenda in the states what do you think about um, you know, the, the, the key changes needed for the balance environment and development so. and one other right in the center here. Uh, 
Hello, um, my name is Madeline Williams. I'm a student at the LSE, and thank you for speaking to us today. I saw that you believe that the less developed countries can learn and benefit from the example of their neighbours. To what extent do you think we will see this benefit, and do you believe that there are factors that still might limit their growth? I think uh, when um, there's dramatic shifts in global power and influence and trade numbers, it takes time to adjust. So I think we should not expect it to be seamless. And that this is why uh, dialogue and conversation are very important. Uh, you have to make certain that people understand you fully. The big concern of China has been that uh, the state-owned enterprises had been supported by the Chinese government. And there was a worry that... Uh, the unlimited kind of supply of money behind them and therefore controlled by certain institutional arrangements may uh, provoke a certain lack of security and things like that. But of course there's also a worry and a fear. The worry and fear is, if you remember similarly, when uh, Japan started moving up the stakes and was seen as a, became the second largest economy in the world, uh, it started doing investments in the U.S. and Disney was bought in one, not Disney, Sony was, yeah, so in Disney they took up a big chunk and, and there was a big hue and cry about those things. And so I think this will take time, but there are, of course, as you know, uh, institutional arrangements being set up to actually channel uh, Chinese private equity money into other uh, countries, particularly U.S. and, and Europe. It's just beginning, but uh, you can see the numbers rising quite a lot. And I think this will only continue, and that's good because it binds the world and, and, and the globe together. Uh, this is equally true of the Chinese. Chinese are also trying to diversify the investments, not just in China. You can see the beginning of that. Uh, it takes time, and I think uh, uh, good leadership and uh, uh, advanced talking to each other is very helpful because then you understand each other better. And this is why I was saying that Precisely when there are so many macro opportunities, some parts of the country, some parts of the world are not doing so well. So maybe there's an opportunity to get out of that uh, mindset of being held back, as it were. Uh, on the environment side, actually, uh, there's a that the, you have the summary, and there's a 200-page document which you, if you access the uh, web, you can see it. Uh, there's actually a paper I've just done with uh, uh, Jean-Paul Fitosi. I don't know if you uh, heard of him. Um, uh, there's the, Sarkozy set up a commission with Stiglitz and Sen and Jean-Fitosi, uh, and we try to understand how do you define sustainability. I mean, how do you actually think through the sustainability? Is it an environmental lens? Do you do it? Do you put the upper limit on ecosystems? And the definitions we are trying to hawk, I mean, we're trying to propose, is really about capabilities and choices, that somehow we have to find ways of not reducing the choices available to future generations, which is a case of weak sustainability as strong, strong sustainability. Strong meaning that uh, if you cross certain barriers, thresholds like the environment, you can replace it easily. Now, I think you cannot deny uh, that the biggest problem of development is development. You have to empower people. You have to lift them out of poverty and degradation and, and discrimination. You have to do that. 
but you have to do that in a smart, more sensible way. I think the whole idea of uh, accelerating growth fast and then polluting a lot and then cleaning up was never a wise uh, business model. And then maybe we can do it better. And there's enough empirical evidence, enough on-the-ground evidence, it is doable. Uh, there's a whole debate about uh, resource scarcity, but you know, evidence shows that whenever there's a talk of resource scarcity, somehow a few years later something else happens. So what is important are these thresholds. If we, if we cross that two-degree two uh, warming ceiling, two-and-a-half-degree warming ceiling, then you get into irreversible kind of situations. So that's something we cannot allow, and we have to find a way out of it. But the, the whole debate in the climate change negotiations is what a common but differentiated responsibility. And the argument there is that the developed countries have greater responsibility because they have done their bit to pollute and degrade, and their per capita levels are high. So the holding developing countries hostage to that is a complicated issue. And I think there's enough uh, uh, thinking that developed countries, developing countries as well, the, particularly China and the large countries, realize that they have to develop in a more sustainable way. So they have set up very strong targets. Uh, China has set up a target of uh, reducing or uh, increasing carbon productivity by 40 percent I mean, per unit of output to reduce the amount of carbon you need to produce that uh, output. So. I mean, clearly much more needs to be done, and we have to uh, do that. But I'm not entirely convinced that, uh, uh, that the environmental issue means that somehow we have to take off our uh, eyes on reducing poverty. I think that, I, I think, uh, you know, the 2011 report is something you should look at. That We kind of demonstrated that uh, uh, the, it's a basically issue of equity, as what we call intergenerational equity between this generation and the next um, if I understood the last question, which, or, which was, uh, are there other factors uh, holding back the least developed countries? Um, I mean, there are, of course, when you are double landlocked. Uh, I used to be the head of the UN in, China, in, in Central Asia uh, a couple of decades ago, and you could see that. You know, if you are landlocked twice over, it's much more difficult to move things forward easily. So there are physical limitations, but you know, we are also entering into a world which is much more connected. Uh, space, which was important, is becoming less important. Uh, there are east-west pipelines and highways being thought about. So, but in the end, you need uh, leadership and a ruling elite which is convinced that development is in their interest. If it is not in their interest, the very few historical examples we can say that things will improve. So we have to find a way to hold elites accountable. And that is the promise that even after a lot of instability, uncertainty, uh, higher education and greater connectivity can lead us to that. Thanks. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much. I know there are other questions out there, but I'm afraid we're going to have to, to bring it to a close. I, I'm very pleased you, that, that your last uh, question and response, rather, dealt with the question of, of the issue of leadership. 
uh, bringing human agency back into the story remains central. At the, the, the numbers capture some of this, but there, there are people behind this, choices being made, decisions being taken, which drive the future of, of, of development in, uh, in uh, the globe today. So thank you very much for coming here to share your vision of this. I'm a little concerned. I'm going to look more closely at the book, this comment about the professorial salaries and that. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you on that particular question. I hope it's not UNDP policy anyway. But, uh, it's, it's not in the report. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> right. um, but thank you again. It's, it's uh, really, really been a pleasure for us to be able to host you here. Um, I just wanted to close by saying that the Global South Unit has, has a website. It's, it's uh, embedded in the, the Department of International Relations uh, uh, website, uh, website here at the LSE. We have future events that, that will be announced on that website as well as the general uh, uh, the general publication, the general website for the LSE, as, and, and in addition to, w to which our publications will be brought forward on that website as well. So thank you again for coming out on this warm uh, uh, evening, and uh, uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon.